Welcome to the final episode of Acamedia for 2019. Acamedia? Acamedia. We, we, we need to fix that tagline. Acamedia, the official podcast of the Journal, Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. It's only been a year we've had to say that. So I'm a very slow learner. getting used to it. But here we are, and we are less than a week away from Christmas, and it is still uh, work time. It is finals week. That's how late our semester's gone. Our grades are due two days before Christmas. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah, the grades are due on the 23rd. If it's any consolation, that's supposed to be a, a day when, you know, all the university staff are already on break. Ah. Uh. But there are going to be a lot of people in the registrar's office really having <laughs> a, a very, very um, not-so-merry Yeah. Christmas Eve Eve. When it used to be, we had to drop off our grades in person in the main building, and when you would go there, main building equals the Golden a walk Dome. Of shame. Well, the they would give you, uh, they would have a plate of cookies there, so you would hand in your grades, and you would get to take a cookie. And although that's delightful, and who doesn't love cookies, it also sort of felt like. Here's your cookie, you know, for your entire for semester's that. work. One cookie for you. Take your cookie. Back of the line, kid. Yeah. My husband used to take four. You know, he Good. would be like, I'm taking as many cookies as I want. <laughs> but no more cookies. Now we post them online and there's no, not even that. We don't even get wow. the cookie anymore. Don't even get the We get like virtual cookie. cookies, right? Privacy tracking or whatever. Yeah. Which is a How whole... Th- Go ahead. Okay, well, I was going to say, which is a whole thing of uh, tw- looking back on 2019, there's been a bunch of retrospectives, and one of them being uh, just this week in the New York Times, uh, they're running a series about how much our phones are tracking us and invading our piracy with our permission. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, good times. Um, how about this? There's only two more days before the days stop getting darker. Oh, two more days we got to get through, and then they... Yeah. Okay. And then it's and then it's all like sunshine and roses ahead. Okay, we can we can do that one day at a time. All right. Did you see the one day at a time reboot? I have not. I watched bits and pieces of it. Okay. I think I watched one episode, and and that was it. Not not that I didn't like it or anything like that. It's just I, yeah, haven't seen it. Yeah, I have I have no I have no opinion because I haven't seen it. I'm just okay. The thing is, like, everything on TV is old, so you know. Yeah, like, just last night, the reboots, or not the reboots, but the uh, live performances of All in the Family and Good Times. Yeah, I recorded those, um, but I did not watch them yet. So. I save those recordings because well, this, of course, last night was also um, the impeachment vote. And as I understand it, there was some really awkward cutting because those shows were performed live. Right. So there was a, se- a question about whether they would continue live during you know the news cut-ins or if they would sit and wait in the mm-hmm. studio. And apparently there was just some really interesting back and forth between um, the news reports and, and the impeachment vote. So save that historic that recording. Is, that is a very distinctly televisual kind of thing. Yes. And I was actually watching Survivor, the finale of what I've been thinking of this season as Sur- Survivor Sexual Harassment Island. Right. And so that, jumping between that, the impeachment vote, and then Twitter and Trump's you know abomination of a speech in Battle Creek, Michigan... It was a little bit too much for me. Mm. I, I didn't I didn't handle it well. I'm, I'm glad I was able to wake up to get here this morning to do our banter because it was kind of a rough night. Oh yeah, I, I feel like I, I feel like I need a little uh, a little peppy hook uh-huh. to pull us back into. You know what? What? Here it is. 
if only there were a way to imagine media studies in like a land of sunshine and wine and uh, beautiful and old rocks and cheese. Fascinating and history. If only. Well, if only. let me tell you, Michael. Wait, what? And we're going to take you there. Oh, yeah. So, and we're so we're going to take you back again to this summer, the warm summer, oh, the delightful summer. summer. Tell me about summer. Yeah. So, this is um a trip I had this summer in a town called Matera, Italy. And here's the evolution of this. Chiara Ferrari is a friend, an academic at Chico State University. She is from Italy, and she I know because we're Facebook friends, she always goes back uh, home to Genova, Italy for the summer. I have always wanted to go to Italy. I don't speak Italian, though, so going there by myself is daunting. So I got this idea. I would be over in, in London for a number of weeks. I thought I could pop over to Italy and visit Chiara, and she could you know, order for me at the pizzeria. So I sent her an email, and she said, sure, I'll be in Italy, but I won't be in Genova. I will be in Matera. And I said, okay, fine, whatever, I'm there. Um, and then I looked up what Matera is, and it's amazing. I'm not going to say too much because the, the uh, interview says plenty about it. I will say, though, I suggest you look up some images of it before you listen to this segment because it's not a place I can really describe well. You have to see it to believe it. And I think it really helps to, to see it before you see the segment. Um, the other thing to know is... Matera has been a location for shooting many legendary films. So Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. I walked the very steps that Jim Caviezel walked in Passion of the Christ. Wonder Woman shot there, and then the upcoming James Bond film shot there. If you see the trailer for the new James Bond film, the opening um, minute basically is uh, chases through the streets of Matera. So that could be another way to check out what Matera is, is check that out. But Chiara and her partner Quinn Winchell were in Matera to shoot a documentary about cultural tourism of Matera and the idea that this is a place where all kinds of films have been shot. It also has a, just an unbelievably unique history, which you'll hear about in the interview. So we're going to be able to take you to Matera here. That's good. We need to go there. The other thing we're going to do in this episode uh, is reflect back on the work of Thomas L. Sasser, who passed away, sadly, just a couple of weeks ago. And so we're going to go back and revisit the Field Notes interview with him. All right. So let's get to the Matera segment first. A couple of things. Let me tell you a little bit about Chiara and Quinn, who you're going to hear from here. So Chiara, is, Chiara Ferrari is an associate professor in the Media Arts Design and Technology Department at California State University, Chico. She got her M.A. from Arizona, her Ph.D. from UCLA in 2007. She teaches courses in media history and media criticism. Her research interests include uh, media and globalization, Italian cinema, and critical theory. She's the author of a book titled Since When is Fran Drescher Jewish? Dubbing Stereotypes in The Nanny, The Simpsons, and The Sopranos. And she also co-edited a collection entitled Beyond Monopoly, Globalization, and Contemporary Italian Media. So she was the director of this documentary. Her cinematographer is Quinn Winchell. He is a lecturer in the Media Arts, Design, and Technology Department and Comparative Religion and Humanities Department at Chico State. He received Master of Fine Arts in Directing in 2011 from the Academy of Art University in San Francisco, and he now runs his own videography company and is videography for Chico State's Center for Healthy Communities. A couple things, just uh, final points to set up this segment. First of all, again, take a look at some pictures of Matera before listening. We can put some on our website. 
Um, secondly, this interview is interspersed with random sounds of the city. I just kind of wanted to, I felt like a big part of this is helping you all understand what Matera looks like and feels like. So I randomly recorded some audio throughout the trip and, and the city. So, you know, weird sounds suddenly pop in and out. If any of you know Italian, you'll be able to understand what pizzas we ordered in here and uh, understand what the woman asked the bus driver. I don't know Italian, so I didn't know any of it, but you can have some fun eavesdropping here if you know Italian. Finally, this has been plaguing me since we recorded this. At the very beginning, I say that we're sitting in front of a plate of sausage. It wasn't sausage. We weren't in Germany. It was salami. But I said sausage, and ever since then I've thought, like, oh, my God, I said sausage, not salami. Oh, so I'm glad so I can goes. correct the record here. That's right. That's what we do. Yep. We are record correctors. Let's get that record going. I'm seated over a lovely plate of uh, sausage in Matera, Italy, with Chiara Ferrari and Quinn Winchell. Uh, welcome to Acamedia. Thank you. For thank you. Us. Well, thank you for having me because I'm staying with you this week and getting a little taste of your life here in Matera um, and your activities and shooting a documentary here. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about. First of all, for those like me who had never heard of Matera, um, for our listeners until this podcast, for me until sending you a DM saying, hey, Kiara, are you in Italy this summer? Can I come visit? Uh, tell us a little bit about Matera. What kind of place is it? Um, what makes it distinctive? So, uh, Matera is a city in southern Italy, the southeast. It's a city in the region of Basilicata. And what makes it unique is that, uh, first of all, it's one of the three cities, the oldest cities in the world. There are cave dwellings that date back to about 9,000 years ago. But what makes it also interesting is in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, the then Prime Minister of Italy um, defined Matera national shame because people were still living in caves with animals. And so they didn't fit with the sort of agenda of a, it was right after World War II. Um, Italy went from a monarchy to being a monarchy uh, to being a republic in 1946. And so the party, the Christian Democratic Party that won the election really wanted to send this message of redevelopment, especially from the South. So somehow Matera became this poster child of the redevelopment of the South. Mm -hmm. This meant that um, the government hired a number of urban planners to literally move between 16,000 and 18,000 people out of the neighborhood of Sassi in Matera to newly developed areas. Um, this was in late 40s, early 50s. It also meant that these neighborhoods were completely abandoned. And so in 1964, Pasolini found this pristine location to shoot the Gospel according to St. Matthew because apparently when he did location scouting in Palestine, that was too modern for him. So he needed a place that was more primitive and paradoxically he found it in Italy. Mm -hmm. In 1964, the Gospel according to St. Matthew came out and that sort of, 
it's not the first film that was shot in Matera, but it's the first film that really brought major attention to Matera. After that, a series of new developments, but um, they brought to a redevelopment and the restoration of the older part of town, which was abandoned in the 1950s, to the point that in 1993, it uh, became a UNESCO heritage site. Mm. And it became a UNESCO heritage site, not so much for its beauty, although it's breathtakingly beautiful, um, but it became a UNESCO heritage site for the collection of water, for the system of collection of water that um, was built in Matera. Fast forward 2019, the reason why we're here, it's Matera is this year the European capital of culture. So it's receiving a lot of attention, international attention, um, and there are a number of events that we're trying to capture in. Oh, I like it. <laughs> Look at this kid. <laughs> then... I like it. I like the Okay. Okay, we got it. Well, and you, as a born and bred Italian, uh, you know, at least somewhat in Italian culture, Quinn, you are a visitor to this culture. So what are some of your impressions of Matera? I think for, first from the film, filmic standpoint, um, as a filmmaker, it, it, you can't get a bad shot here. Mm. It is, it's so beautiful. It's so tranquil. It's so, the architecture, the development of the city, it's, it, it's unlike anything that I have seen. And I mean, no, I've not traveled everywhere in the world, but the few places I've been to, this tops it in terms of the, the, the splendor and the beauty of the location. It's interesting, we'll get into that sure a little bit later, but the why people choose to film here in Matera, I think it really does have to do with the visual aspects of it. I think it's, um, there's probably a philosophical nature for some filmmakers, but for others I think there is very much the, the beauty of it. It's so unique in how it looks and how it can be represented. So. Allora, la prima corsa è alle 6 e mezza. 6 e mezza, non alle 7 e mezza. No, un attimo che controllo bene perché poi cambia da pre-festivo, festivo. Allora, no, da domani, domani, per lunedì, voglio sapere. Well, this is a fascinating trajectory then from a, you know, a place condemned and shamed to a cultural heritage site and one, as you said, people come here simply to film for its beauty. So let's turn to the second part of that, coming here to film for its beauty. But you're doing much more than just filming its beauty, of course. You want to really dig into that culture. So uh, what is your documentary going to be about and why did you want to make a documentary rather than, as you said, uh, talking to me earlier, Kriara, that you've written things on it. So what has led you to the next step, which is your first film production, to want to make a film about it? Well, Chris, you you are lucky enough to see these places, so I think that it's easy for you to understand why yeah. I want to make a documentary. There is no way that in a paper, in a book, or whatever, I could capture the essence and the beauty of this location. Even in a still photo, you couldn't capture it. Exactly, exactly. And so there are two main reasons. One is um, the desire to capture 
not just the beauty, but the deep meaning of these locations. And paradoxically, sometimes the beauty works against it because people tend to stay on the surface of the beautiful location and not really to explore the deep historical meaning of this location. And I try to to go beyond just the aesthetics. But the other reason uh, for which I thought that a documentary was key is because through interviews I could really give a voice to people from Matera. So through publications I can certainly interpret and give my own judgment and give my own view of this phenomena. But through interviewing people on video and listening to their voices and seeing them, um, it, it was very important for me to let them speak about this city. And I figured that a documentary might be a more powerful way to deliver that message. Allora, io ho scritto a Matt Jones e sto aspettando di vedere se lui possa, possa parlare con lui. Cioè, um, ma anche senza, cioè, anche senza che sia nel, nel, proprio nell'intervista. Volevo solo, cioè, mi interessa questo processo che tu vai di casa in casa a informare le persone. È l'unica cosa che mi interessa eh, in sapere. E in che senso ti interessa sapere? Cioè, che in, come le, le produzioni cinematografiche comunque eh, si relazionano alla città. Ok, allora facciamo una cosa, perché io comunque sì. del progetto non cioè, firmo un accordo, mm-hmm. non posso dire assolutamente mm-hmm. nulla. Se hai altro adesso ti lascio magari un contatto telefonico così che finisco. Sì, 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 okay, sì. Well then Quinn, let me ask you to explain to us through your filmmakers' eyes and ears what you've been seeing and then hearing from interviews. Um, what so picking up on what Chiara is talking about, about wanting to capture this um, kind of cultural depth to Matera, what kinds of footage are you getting, what kinds of things are you hearing in your interviews? Overall, I think we're trying to capture an essence that hasn't been seen before and I think that really is the portions where you know we were just underground how many times have we been underground in the city so far in these last two days that's kind of what we're seeing we're seeing how tourism is affecting the city Uh, we're seeing how landscape is changing we're seeing how film productions are using the city Um, I so for me I kind of have to take a step back at a certain point and it's it's just not about capturing that um, you know that picturesque vista bathed in a beautiful sunlight or dusk or dawn or what have you. It's it's people watching, mm. and that's what it's kind of boiled down to in a sense. It's we're we're getting the beautiful shots, but we're also getting the uh, tourist point information uh, stations. We're getting the onslaught of tourists that are coming in busload by busload. Uh, we're getting, which it's just kind of one of those things I like to do. It's just. There is, with tourism, comes an amount of garbage, waste, Mm -hmm. things like that. You know, how does this stuff all affect the the city? How does this affect the the individuals who have lived here their entire lives? Mm -hmm. If it's anything like Venice, they might not live here very often. They might actually just live here for a few months during the tourist season, maybe, or vice versa, or maybe they'll leave during the off-season. I don't know, but... It's been an interesting month to really capture the city in different lights. <laughs>
We started to get into another thing I wanted to ask about because, of course, a lot of work on culture-based tourism finds upsides and downsides. And so I'm curious, you know, Kiara, for instance, coming in, what you were thought you would find about that? Are you getting that from your interviews? So the idea of, of tourism in general, and cultural tourism is one of them, is, um, and that's really come from one of the most interesting interviews that I had with the tourist guide. So his perspective was that, you know, with tourism, there are two main risks that come. One is the material risks. Uh, the fact that people might not respect the material locations, so graffiti or ruin the actual location or uh, garbage or... So th there's the actual material impact of tourism. There's, there's a different type of impact, which is tourism somehow affects the core identity mm. of a place. However, in Matera, again, this is a little bit of a paradox because the original inhabitants of the Sassi were moved out in the 50s. So these neighborhoods, these locations, uh, I'm not talking about the entire um, city of Matera, I'm talking specifically about the neighborhood of the Sassi that have been restored since the 1980s. But this means that from the late 50s, early 60s, were when people were moved out, and the 80s when these neighborhoods were restored and redeveloped, and you know th these process of redevelopment started. This means that for like 20 to 30 years, this was a completely abandoned area. So it is a little bit of a problem to discuss tourism as something that it's affecting the identity of a place where the identity of a place was truly ripped of its essence in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. So whatever it's happening to Matera, it's something planned. It's something that it was planned in the 50s by removing the people. It was planned in the 80s by redeveloping the, these areas. And now there's a chance to a new level of redevelopment by understanding the kind of impact that the tourists can bring. But saying that the tourists are affecting the original core identity of the place that happened in the 50s, that right. that identity was literally stopped and evacuated mm -hmm. in the 1950s. So it's hard to measure and monitor that impact when whatever it's in the Sassi, it's something that has been redeveloped artificially starting in the 80s. Right. Which itself is a great metaphor for filmmaking, you know, artificially <laughs> creating something where they're coming here to try to capture something that's here, but also imposing something. Non è per il giallo, 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 non è per
The paradoxical nature that we keep talking about of Hollywood itself is that you know we're they're building something ancient to be destroyed. <laughs> All right. So it's interesting how the city is used. Um, the other thing that I keep thinking about, and we've always thought about this since the day we we came here, and you told me about the, the sense of shame and how the shame needed to be recorrected and re um, redeveloped in a sense. It's a fascinating point of research, but also it's a, it's a fascinating concept that it's a shame that is given from an outsider's perspective. Right. And, you know, we ourselves are outsiders and we're making a film. We have a completely different aspect, so it, it's adding layer upon layer. Um, I, I personally think they don't have anything to be sh ashamed of. Uh, historically, people have lived in caves for a long time, so I mean, I guess it's that it's that whole fight against you know modernity versus the old world. Um, but it, it was always it's such a fascinating thing to look at, even while we've been filming here for the last month. It's just there's a sense of timelessness about this place, and you wonder how how becoming a European capital of culture could change that even further. I'm interested to see where this the city will be in a year. I'm interested to see where it will be in five years, um, how it will be used on film, how it will be uh, used politically, if mm -hmm. anything. Um, I, if it can sustain itself, if that if that core identity is already gone, um, what's what's left? Mm -hmm. I, I, there's so many questions out there that need to be kind of revisited and answered and I think only time will tell with mm. that but it's it's a wonderful project to be on yeah so well, it even complicates the notion of beauty because you said the same places albeit restored but the same places that were there when it was declared shameful mm -hmm. but you stand like you know there's some of these points where you can look at anything and I'm sure in the 1950s from afar looking down it was gorgeous um, and, and perhaps even inside of the caves, the people who were living there had their own form of, of beauty or making their lives or whatever. So it's such a complex idea then to, you know, and, and also like you brought up the idea also the kind of heritage designation is for this amazing system of, of water. And that's also not something you can see. You, keep, you, you know, you mentioned hopefully it'll rain when I'm here and I'll get to see it. Um, we did go into the, the cistern and I got to see that, but um, pray for rain and got to see that. <laughs> But that's, again, another one of those complexities of the city that you don't know about until you get here and really get into a place. And I assume that's another reason for doing a documentary, like getting yourself into a community, filming it, talking with people. Mm -hmm. um, so let me ask that, then broaden that out a little bit, because you um, both are also critical studies professors. You teach um, cinema studies. And Quinn, you have regularly taught production, and um, Kiara, you're now embarking on production. So what do you see about this relationship then between documentary filmmaking and critical studies? Like Quinn, for instance, and you're teaching American cinema, um, and you've got this you know, background in, in documentary filmmaking. How do you think one feeds the other? I, I always try to approach this, you know, we're not just doing a dolly left. 
We're not just doing a dolly ride. We're not pedestaling. We're not, I mean, it doesn't need to be in slow motion because this needs to look cool. It's, there's, there's a, there's a function to every, every shot. And that's why I've, since I'm the cinematographer, I asked the director, <laughs> what do you want in this shot? What are we trying to convey? And that's the, otherwise we're just out there filming for no reason. Mm. And it just, it does a disservice to the work that she's done. It does a disservice to the city. Uh, I think even, it was interesting when we were with the drone pilot, um, and because I couldn't fly here because I don't have a license in Italy to fly, he was t- they were talking and afterwards he, she said that you know, he's flown for so long and it took him so long to figure out how to appropriately represent the city mm-hmm. via drone shots mm-hmm. and if you look online you'll see you can clearly see people who are adamant about rep- representing the city and those who are just trying to get a cool shot and I think that's the difference between the critical approach and the production approach of filmmaking you know, documentaries are not my my. I'm, I'm a narrative storyteller. I've, I've always done short stories, long form, what have you. So, a documentary gives you a chance to play with the format a little bit, to improvise to a certain extent. But I think you do have to have you know the philosophy of the city in mind specifically with this when you're filming it. It's there's a reason why I always say, okay, I need to get close-ups of the the pedestrian angles, the rocks, the formations, the the cracks, the crevices, uh, the, the puncture wounds in the from from water from the degradation of the soil. It's just you need to capture those elements. Otherwise, it's like, oh, yeah, I, you see that building in about 5,000 shots on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. How can we make this a little bit different? So uh, I think that's you know, a very long-winded answer to mm. a, a question, your question, but it's, it's, I always try to make it so it's, there's a point to the shot. Yeah. Well, I think that reflects back on what you were saying about coming to Matera yourself as a form of tourist, your academic tourists, um, your film production tourists, and, and feeling a sense of responsibility to capture. And it's so complex to figure out what to capture here and how to capture it. Mm-hmm. But perhaps have, having that critical studies background gives you an in to be already thinking about those things before you turn the camera on. Un'altra bottiglia d'acqua frizzante sì. e una birra chiara per me. Quindi riproviamo fior di formaggi, rosso di sera e primavera centano. E la rossa di sera rossa con di sera la rucola. Poi intanto ti dico da bere dopo allora. Ah, ah ok. Um, Chiara, how do you think this experience will affect your work going forward, thinking about representation and culture? Well, you know, I mean, as, as you said, this is really my first production. I'm, generally speaking, I hate production because <laughs> I'm a control freak uh, and production tends to be out of control <laughs> constantly. So for me, like, everything needs to work perfectly. There have to be no... <laughs> It, so it, it's <laughs> only 60% of the time <laughs> so it's hard for me to it was hard I, I don't think it, it's it's anymore um, it was hard for me to accept that I would have to let things go at some point that I would have to adapt to 
the filmmaking process as opposed to impose my own control freakness <laughs> to the production side. Um, this, however, doesn't just apply to the production. This actually applies to what I'm representing. And so what was eye-opening for me was precisely the idea that in a paper, I think it's very hard not to impose your voice. Um, it's you who's writing, it's you who's interpreting, it's you who's creating an argument. I'm not saying that in the documentary I'm not creating an argument or hopefully a narrative that can be followed, but my goal is to create a documentary where the opinion, the impression, the feeling of the people can come out as they are, mm -hmm. not as interpreted through my lens. Which meant that I really had to put myself in a position of some of it is planned and some of it is completely left to whatever is happening, whoever I can meet through a network of people. We came to Matera without having scheduled one <laughs> single interview. Mm. Which I had sweating one. a little bit. <laughs> the production guy was like, you're insane. Um, <laughs> but I had to explain to him that this is the way the city works. It's a city that is fairly small, 60,000 people. Mm. Everyone knows everyone. And you just need to, you need to be welcome in this community. And once you make an effort to truly be part of this community by listening to them, by not imposing your predetermined judgment or whatever, by listening and studying, they, they really do appreciate that you study the history, that you go beyond the surface. Then they literally open a world to you. And so we, we are now at 23 interviews. Yes. 23, 24. Mm -hmm. um, I assume that we should be able to get to 25 for sure before we leave in, in a few days. Mm -hmm. But that was completely unexpected. And I had to rely on people understanding the project, people respecting. I, I, I think I have found a lot of respect mm -hmm. for, for what we're doing. I have, I don't, I wouldn't say that I have found criticism. I have found people that have warned me against, look, this is a simplistic view you need to, or this is kind of a rhetorical, like we were talking before about shame and redemption, so to speak. Mm -hmm. This is a completely made up rhetoric by institutions. Mm -hmm. People were not ashamed and they don't feel they have been redeemed now but it is the rhetoric that the institutions have built as a brand for the city and so I have been warned very strongly against you know falling into this trap of believing this rhetoric and so I, I positioned myself as this is a city that had nothing to be ashamed of and as you said the same Patrimony, the same elements that are now discussed as one of the most beautiful cities in Italy, uh, the European capital of culture, is exactly what was here in the 1950s. So this is not a project that wants to fall into that rhetoric and wants to celebrate some sort of non-existent redemption. 
that somehow is pushed forward as the branding of the city. project is financed by the Lantis Endowment, uh, Lantis Chair Endowment Award from my university and I'm, and I'm very grateful that this money allows me, it, it has allowed me to take this project at the next level. I've published articles, I've translated a book, I've done some research, I've taken some photos. This was the year and not next year and not in two years. This is the year. 2019, in which Matera is the European capital of culture. If I wanted to make a documentary, it had to be this year. And I'm and I'm glad that I'm glad that the university understood the urgency and the importance of the pro the, the project. And I think that I'm also in a way proud that I could make a case for this city to be a case study for something much more universal. And so I'm I'm very grateful that that the university has believed in, in this project. Um, but there is somehow an interest in the city, a sort of a mysticism um, of this city that truly has inspired not only film, but anthropologists, photographers. Cartier-Bresson famously shot here. So it is a city that truly gets to the core of men's history. And I think that film has been able to represent it, anthropology have been able to discuss it and research it, photographers have been able to capture it somehow, and urban planners also have been able to look at the way the original neighborhoods were organized and trying to build something that somehow in modern ways could recreate it, whether or not they've achieve that result, that's, that's up for debate. <laughs> Any final thoughts, Kiara? Yes, I am absolutely 100% sure that I could not have shot and made this documentary anywhere else. Mm. Uh, the openness, the welcoming nature of the people, the complete desire to put me in contact with other people, with filmmakers, with other intellectuals, with the local institutions has been it's sort of mind-blowing. And, and so, for example, the city that was previously the European capital, the Italian city, the last city that was European capital of culture in Italy was my hometown. Oh, really? Genova in 2004. I could not, I could not make this documentary. Even though that's your own hometown, you wouldn't Even have it. And so I, I think I'm overall very grateful at the way I've been welcomed here. But I'll add one more thing. It's sure. Just, they, they absolutely adore you. <laughs> and 
for good reason. But I, I have never seen such a strong commitment and just a, an adoration of one's home. When she talks to these individuals, you know, one thing is clear. They are passionate about their city. They love their city. So I think the fact that you absolutely love this city, they can tell that you have a, a love for it. They can tell that you really respect the city. And at the same time, I'm willing to listen to their criticism. Mm -hmm. The fact that they love and they're passionate about their city, um, that doesn't mean that they're not critical of it. And, um, and I think that they appreciate that I'm not falling into this trap mm -hmm. of this postcard beautiful picture that Matera is. Matera is an absolutely gorgeous city. But if you stop at that level, if you stop at the postcard selfie level, mm -hmm. you're really going to miss the true nature of what this city can offer. And I think that people here have appreciated the fact that we have gone beyond that surface. Right, and it really speaks to the notion of how much people can be steeped in their own history. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the people of a particular culture, not just what it is of that place right now, but of its past. And that seems like a difference then with Matera and other places about what the history of this place means. And especially the recent history, you know, the 40s to the 50s is not that long ago in the memory of, of many. And, and then they kind of pass these ideas on to children. So that seems really profound about, you know, your statement that this is, you could have only made it here. It seems like only this place has this kind of history that's made them reflect on what this place means to them. Um, and so I really look forward to seeing how your documentary captures that. No pressure or anything. We do too. Just capture that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. For Thanks for the chat. Thank you so you for that that was it's you know for purely selfish reasons it's really great to uh to go somewhere else but it's also great to have an opportunity to think about how a place has been written and rewritten and rewritten and reused mm. and um and remapped in so many different kinds of ways yeah and it's just that that you know as i was saying at the end there that notion of this is the kind of history that it could only be to you know endemic to this place and i'm really fascinated by that idea and especially looking forward to seeing the documentary. This is going to be, they're planning another subsequent trip to Matera, so it's going to be um, a while before this documentary's out, so I'm sorry that you won't be able to see it. You'll be able to see the James Bond movie <laughs> before you see um, Quinn and Kiara's documentary, but we will let you know when the documentary is out, because I can't wait to see what um, they captured there. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that, that stood out to me is Kiara saying that this was the year she had to make this documentary of... Uh, Matera being the 2019 European cultural capital. And that made us think, as far as here on the podcast, thinking about 2019 and things that have happened and, and, and what this has meant to this year as we hear, uh, sit here wrapping it up. And unfortunately, one seismic event to media studies happened a couple weeks ago with the death of Thomas Elsasser basically a Mount Rushmore figure of, of media studies, both, you know, starting in film studies and increasingly expanding that, that influence. So we wanted to reflect on his influence and revisit 
a field note segment that we presented in 2014 um, to let you hear his voice. And in this interview, the beginning, he talks about his early days in film studies. At the end, he thinks about some of the future issues in, in media studies. So I think this is a really good way to help us think about his legacy and how to carry it forth. Yes, indeed. Let's let's give this a listen. And just to note, this is uh, Patrice Petro who is interviewing him at the 2014 Seattle SCMS conference. And shout out to Field Notes uh, at the time under the direction of Heidi Wasson. Hello, my name is Patrice Petro. Today is Friday, March 21st. Um, we're sitting in a suite in the uh, Sheraton Hotel in Seattle at the SCMS conference in 2014 in Seattle. With me is Thomas Alcesser. Um, he is a prolific and award-winning scholar of film studies whose work extends beyond the study of film to include television studies, new media studies, art and cultural memory, system theory, and telecommunications. He has written extensively and eloquently on such topics as melodrama, memory, European and Hollywood cinema, media archaeology, the avant-garde, and the archive. While Alsasser is perhaps best known for his studies on almost every period of German film history, from early film to the cinema of the Weimar Republic to the new German cinema, he has also written and co-edited numerous books, including, most recently, those on early cinema, television, and new media. Among his most recent books are Film Theory, An Introduction Through the Census from 2010, The Persistence of Hollywood from 2012, and German Cinema, Terra and Trauma, Cultural Memory Since 1945, which came out in 2013. So let's begin. In your 2008 distinguished career at the time called the Lifetime Membership Award, but in that 2008 distinguished career address you said, and I quote, my career as a film scholar has often seemed based on a series of misunderstandings, mostly productive ones to be sure, but in true melodramatic fashion, out of sync, too soon, too late, the right thing at the wrong place, or vice versa. So my first question is, prefaced by this, and to say it's well known that you came of age as a cinephile during the 1960s, founding and running a film magazine, Monogram, and writing one of the earliest major articles on Hollywood auteurs. What got you interested in becoming a film and media scholar? Thank you, uh, Patrice. Um, glad to be here. You're right that at a certain point I was thinking of my career as what I now call parapraxis, in other words, successful failures. But thinking about it again, and going back a little bit into my biography, uh, it's also uh, a structured schizophrenia. Because I started watching films on a regular basis quite early, when I was 14, uh, a year after my maternal grandfather died, because my job became to be the chaperone of my now uh, widowed grandmother. And my grandmother had one great passion, which was the cinema. But she had a, a special passion for Burt Lancaster. So we saw a lot of films with Burt Lancaster together, which were way beyond my age, but certainly totally fascinated me from here to eternity, greatest show on earth, and many, many others. 
But my parents were also cinephiles. They were members of a film club that met every Friday. And so when on Sunday night and Wednesday I went with my grandmother, on Friday night I went with my parents. But my parents were absolutely bourgeois, middle-class film consumers who adored Rossellini, mm. Bresson, Bergman, and many of the other names from the mid-50s, because this all happened around 56, 57. I also got, as a birthday present, a subscription to the only serious German film magazine at the time, Film Critique, of which it turned out I was one of the, the longest subscribing members right at the bitter end in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s. So I grew up with two apparently conflicting cinematic traditions. On the one hand, a love of Hollywood movies, melodramas, uh, weepies, action films, and uh, a deep respect for European cinema at the same time. Fascinating. Um, I wondered if you could describe your first teaching job at a university. Your, your, your doctorate was in comparative literature. Um, and I wonder, your first teaching job, where was it? How did you get it? What was the first film or media studies course you taught? And what could you tell us about that? I studied at the University of Sussex in England, um, starting in 1963, after breaking off uh, a study of uh, Russian and uh, Polish literature in Heidelberg University in 1962. And at Sussex, I continued with my serious interest in the cinema by uh, um, participating in a film club and then starting a film magazine. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But in 1973, I was hired by the University of East Anglia in comparative literature because, as you said, my PhD, uh, my formation was in English and French and comparative literature. But since I was still, at that point, actively involved in the, f in the film critical uh, community in, in Britain, in London as well, I was very much motivated to introduce film as an uh, academic subject at my new home at the University of East Anglia and received backing for this from the British Film Institute, mm. from its uh, education department, which at the time was run by Ed Buscombe and uh, Peter Wallen. So uh, we concocted a scheme whereby the so-called new universities, and East Anglia was one of the new universities in Britain that founded in the 60s, um, were able to draw on funds that the British Film Institute was making available to hire people teaching film at university level. Uh, and to do this, or give seed money, as it was called, for three years on the assumption that the university would then take over this particular position. Um, at that time, I had already begun to explore what it would mean to teach film uh, in a university setting through a combination that probably was quite typical for the time, namely novel into film. In other words, very much with regard to uh, the sensibilities and orthodoxies of uh, literature, literature studies and seeing how one could actually talk about adaptation without you know, a priori assuming that a film adaptation of a novel must be worse than the novel. So that was the first, if you like, um, 
um, counterintuitive or counterinstitutional move that I made was through a very conventional and to my mind not particularly productive topic, uh, novel into film, to introduce a new agenda. Uh, but when we then uh, hired our first uh, um, film scholars, Charles Barr, uh, we very quickly moved to establishing film studies in its own right, and we were extremely successful in building up an undergraduate program within English and American studies. Because that was the point, uh, mid-70s, when students just loved to talk about movies and had sufficient background in the movies to talk about them seriously and want to be challenged also at the theoretical level. Could you discuss the dynamics of film and media publishing during the early phase of your career? You already men mentioned being the sub longest subscriber to Film Critique, but what were the possibilities for, for publishing in film and, and how did this shape what you wrote about? Well, at the University of Sussex in 1963, we ran a film club. And for this film club, probably because I was used to going to film clubs in Germany, where they had program notes, mm -hmm. I initiated writing program notes for the films we were showing in the film club. And I drew quite heavily on the two sources that I had available or that I was familiar with. One was Film Critique and the other was Cahiers du Cinema. I had by then become a fairly regular reader of Cahiers du Cinema and also of its uh, British equivalent, namely Movie Magazine. So we were plundering quite shamelessly um, those journals in providing notes for our viewers. After a few years, I thought this was rather, first of all, I then began to write my own notes for the films rather than simply uh, cutting and pasting quotes from, from others. And I thought this is rather ephemeral. I put a lot of work in that and it was always painful to see people on the way out throwing my my text into the waste paper basket. So I thought, well, there must be a way of preserving this. So what I decided is to start a, f a film magazine called the Brighton Film Review, which was basically a listings magazine for Brighton, not just for the University Film Club, for, but all the cinemas in, in Brighton. And we had small, and this was before listings magazines like Time Out ever appeared. Uh, so we had a listings part with caption reviews of the films that were shown in town, uh, but we used the second half of the magazine to write longer articles. So my first publications actually took place uh, th around the magazine, and they were uh, in a duplicated form, uh, um, Ronia type or Gostetna uh, running it off a, a, a drum. Uh, and uh, I was lucky with this because I was uh, subletting a room in a house in a kind of commune that was run by the Trotskyist faction of uh, the Labour Party in Brighton. And they had acquired this, this rather exotic machine, a Gestetner machine for their own pamphlets and so on. So I appropriated that machine as my publication tool. Well, we're coming up to the end of our time here. Um, and I, I guess well, uh, the last question—it's um, a big question—and you can—you uh, don't need to give a, a big answer. But I—and you've just—I've uh, just come from a panel where you were discussing all these issues in, in quite a lot of detail. But where do you feel the future of university film and media study and scholarship is headed? 
Um, how do you think, what, what is the role of film theory and cinematic thinking um, today? And um, I'm just wondering, as you're looking forward, you're now retired from the University of Amsterdam. They have a mandatory retirement, uh, right? You're not certainly retired from the field at all. Um, but I'm wondering what you see as the future directions or where we're headed. Well, the first answer is I'm sitting back and letting it happen. I'm very happy for genera new generations to take over. And I, again, I'm very privileged that when I come to something like a size cinema media studies annual conference, I have at least three generations of my students presenting papers. And so it's up to them. Basically, they take it wherever they want to take it. They have my backing, they have my blessing, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, in that sense, I'm extremely gra grateful to be here as a grandfather rather than as an Oedipal father. So that relieves a certain burden of having to defend a particular ideology or particular paradigm. Looking at it from a slightly less biographical, autobiographical perspective, I think we have huge challenges. I think on the one hand, we are, as film studies, besieged by two major challenges. One challenge is that we've been too successful in under, at the undergraduate level, which has meant that we have lost out or have missed out on resources in many, many of the universities and have been amalgamated and have been the first victims of a, a downsizing of the humanities quite generally. Uh, and furthermore, because we are s such an open field, we have given a lot of people the opportunities to teach film without actually being formed in film studies. Anybody thinks now they can teach film. And in the one, on the one hand, that's good because uh, we have all these missionaries out there doing the good work. On the other hand, we have no control over how, how it's taught and we have very little grip on a kind of disciplinary backbone where we can you know, call people to order and say, look, you know, it's better done this way rather than that way. Um, we've also obviously, and again, that's part of uh, uh, the price for success, we have lost uh, the coherence of the field as having one particular genealogy. That is the classic genealogy of uh, uh, the theorists, uh, German, French, and American in the 20s, and then Bazin is a key figure, uh, and then Metz and uh, screen studies and so on. You know, that particular line which allowed us both to be uh, in constant dialogue with our predecessors and at the same time pushed certain questions back to the forefront over and over again in the way that a discipline does, uh, that was denied to us in the, in the 80s and 90s and uh, it was uh, let a thousand flowers bloom or whatever. And uh, what I sense is that the field is under the the field is consolidating itself, and, and this is, interestingly enough, under the challenge of the so-called digital, which means that a lot of us are now either, as it were, um, corralling the wagons and retrenching in 
redefining what we think the cinema is, and we're quite happy to say maybe the cinema is over, not necessarily dead, but it is now like other disciplines, it deals with the past. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it actually helps to put a kind of closure on it. And once you have closure, you have a new grip on what is essential to the field, the discipline, and so on. And uh, uh, as you know, there are people very respected in our field who proceed precisely on, along those lines. There are others who say, yes, the cinema is over, and I want to be on the other side. I want to be on the digital side. This is where the action is. This is where new things are. And I don't care if cinema is just is you know interesting, but it's 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 a speciality. It's a niche, like Middle English or you know whatever the humanities have. You know, like uh, studying medieval manuscripts or uh, Byzantine icons. You know, then you study cinema the way they do their particular field, um, and they're perfectly happy with that because what they need from the cinema they find now re-articulated, reworked in digital culture in one form or another. And, uh, you know, that's, that's fine. Uh, I belong to those precisely perhaps because I've been through so many paradigms and have seen both their value but also their transitoriness that I think um, it may be worthwhile to actually think about it in those longer terms that I was presenting uh, earlier today where I was looking at uh, the uh, relatively new phenomenon, namely how uh, film and philosophy now relate to each other after uh, philosophy having ignored the cinema for the best part of 100 years. There are now a lot of philosophers who are very interested in, in film and cinema and at the same time there are a lot of film scholars who uh, are interested in philosophy and actually think that the dilemmas and uh, uh, deadlocks of film theory can be solved by moving to f film philosophy. And of course, there divides open up between Anglo-Saxon pragmatists and uh, uh, um, analytical philosophers and continental philosophers more uh, metaphysically inclined or deconstructivist inclined. So I see that as a fruitful development because as long as we don't say we're not going to talk to the other side, I think it's a very uh, positive and potentially extremely productive dialogue that's about to take place, which doesn't mean I want to give that a particular priority. I think uh, other movements that are extremely important is the globalization of film studies. In other words, that whether you're in queer studies or whether in European cinema or whether you're into... Uh, horror as a genre, it's now understood you take a view of global cinema and not of your national cinema or even exclusively of Hollywood. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out of this very busy day to talk with me. Um, thanks very much. Thank you. So, Michael, any thoughts on the, the legacy of Thomas yeah, Alcester? It's, it's such a great interview. And th this was one of the first field notes, really, right? I mean, this was yeah. um, one, of the, one of the first conversations. And uh, it's a, uh, unfortunately a reminder of, of how precious those conversations are. I, um, so this was 
recorded in 1914 or 2000. <laughs> so this was recorded in 2014. Since then, he he came out with his uh, film history as media archaeology book, which is really terrific and and um, a great both a synthesis of a growing conversation and also opens up some uh, pathways forward. And he also had, uh, just this past year, a new book on European cinema and continental philosophy. Mm. I mean, it's just a, a remarkable intellect. I always, in, when I'm teaching a history and memory class, I very often use this nice little essay of his about uh, Schindler's List and Shoah that is... You know, he's just he's just reflecting on on the different kinds of uh, historiographic models posed by uh, those two very very different uh, films, and it's just such elegant writing that opens up such fantastic big questions about representation and history mm. and um, and narrative, and mm. it's re- it's just really uh, it's really sad to lose him. Well, and what you're saying there also speaks to one of the the greatness greatest aspects of his work, where he could take something granular and and pose big questions from it, and that's why yeah. he's been so important. And, and I think that also is clear in the interview, the end, where he's saying this is back is back in 2014, where he's saying some of the key issues are, you know, reconciling the uh, you know the circling the wagons around the idea of, of cinema is dead. How do we incorporate the digital? You know, here we are now. No longer the uh, podcast of Cinema Journal, but the podcast of the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. Right, mm-hmm. so that evolution has gone further. Or the idea of thinking about relationships between film and philosophy, or the globalization of film studies. Right, we just had a couple podcasts ago, an interview about that of trying to break through that Western specific perspective on cinema. So, like all these things he was talking about five years ago, we've seen continuity and evolution in all those areas. Yeah. Well, we are grateful to to have had him in the conversation for as long as as we did. Yeah, and grateful to recording technology where we can keep hearing his mm-hmm. his voice and his ideas. Yes, indeed. And we wanted to to finish up then thinking about this idea of some things that mattered in 2019 in media studies and academia. Um, we asked our uh, broadcasting partners, and Bill Kirkpatrick had a few thoughts. Um, And I'm just going to read what what he wrote us. He said, this seems to be the year that finally put paid to the early utopian promises of the Internet. People have long known that the dream of the, quote, virtual community, unquote, was unrealistic and that threats from both the state and the market were perpetually undermining the visions of the large scale non-hierarchical cooperation, universal knowledge, free speech, etc. But I read a lot more pieces this year in which it really finally sank in how bad things are. Not just that the never-realizable utopianism was a myth, but that even more the grounded, realistic, and normal, optimistic versions of what the tools could allow us to accomplish had gone seriously off the rails. So thanks for that, Upper Bill. Yeah, thanks, Bill. (laughs) There's your 2019. He did say, in positive news, the net neutrality decision was not a total disaster, allowing for state and local regulations in support of a neutral internet, and the Criterion channel seems to be thriving. So there you go. Positive thoughts from Bill. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, but those really struck me, especially, again, as we're getting not just year-end pieces, but decade-end pieces, yeah. and thinking back on 10 years of, of the internet and social media, and the ways in which it's kind of broken us as a society, even as a democracy, and then the big question being, well, what do we do January 1st, 2020? What yeah. kinds of ways do we um, 
deal with things like Facebook and Google and, you know, ring doorbells and things like this that are fundamentally changing aspects of our of our society. Yeah, it's uh, well, these are interesting times, right? Um, I'm trying to not just uh, rehearse my own litany of of complaints about how people have gotten it wrong or, or you know, ways in which I've gotten it wrong and and that kind of thing, and, and instead try to find um, a more forward-looking, optimistic way of talking <laughs> about the current state of affairs. But I suppose in, in the most basic sense, there's some value in, uh, in recognizing the thing in front of us rather than mm. trying to sort of euphemize about it. Yeah. And that's, not, that's a very small positive <laughs> right. thing to try to hang, hang your... Um, uh, future on, but there well, there's it is. also similar notion, um, much smaller scale, but maybe even as big impact. The impact of Fox News, which you know became a big deal, in, especially in 2016, but the awareness of it in 2019, and particularly the way in which it's been tracked through, not just the influence of what people think, but literally what President Trump does. So, Media Matters, Matt Gertz just released an article about tracking basically the one-to-one connection of something that appears on Fox News that becomes policy that President Trump pushes. And again, we have to figure out what to do about that. Mm -hmm. But having that kind of documentation of what exactly is is happening is important. Yeah. Yeah. And and connecting the dots is is Mm -hmm. absolutely central. Um, This past semester, I've been teaching my... um, Well, what the students going in probably imagined to be a, a class about the about the breakfast club you know it's um it's this is a, your 80s class it's, my, it's a 1980s media culture class it's partly about media convergence but really it's about um cultural politics and the scholarship about film and television that was that was developed in the in the 1980s and mm-hmm. so we we're going back and rereading baudrillard and fred jameson and um mm-hmm. and it's impossible to, to not read our present in in um, looking at that material and and being reminded of you know what Jameson was writing about 40 years ago 30 year, 30 plus years ago about about the problem of orientation that, that before we can map any kind of future or, or um, respond to any particular uh, immediate political challenge we have to be able to have a kind of cognitive map of mm. of where we are and where the where the fault lines are and where um, how power works, mm. and that's a really that's a really kind of concrete sort of problem, right? <laughs> you know, and to be able to to just map something that feels so diffuse and omnipresent um, is is vertiginous and scary and and seems impossible. But then you think about something as as close and to to use a word that you used earlier, granular, as as remapping the kind of uh, psychotic conversation that goes on between Fox News and uh, Trump's tweets. That's a really important relationship to document, and that's, that's evidence that needs to be, be pulled into a conversation about, about the, um, the flow of power, mm-hmm. and that's actually really, really useful. And hopefully you've spawned a few dissertations with, with those thoughts, because I think I'm just thinking of like how many great projects could come from some of those ideas. The other uh, you know, thought on, on thinking about circuits of power and, and accountability is I wanted to make note of how many important 
university-related strikes have happened in 2019 and even just in the last few weeks. So in the UK, we've had strikes at individual universities. Mark Stewart has talked about um, what's going on at Coventry. Yeah. University um, and issues related to pensions and pay and workloads. We've got the university and college union, the UCU, which has also led um, a 10-day strike. Uh, you heard about UCU last year from Acamedia. We did a, a piece on that in June 2018. Um, so things are kind of on hold right now, but there's promises for continued 2020 action if demands aren't met. You've got the things happening in Hong Kong, so protests that started in March opposing extradition laws and have expanded into demands for universal suffrage, acknowledge of police brutality, and, and universities have become flashpoints for that, and especially because these are kind of youth-led protests. Um, and so universities have been invaded by riot police. That's also happened in India. You have studio uh, student protests in India over the Citizenship Amendment Act, a controversial law to fast-track citizenship for everyone but Muslim asylum asylum seekers. So those protests started at Muslim-majority universities but have expanded and authorities have viciously cracked down. Um, here in the U.S., we've seen strike actions by graduate students at Harvard and University of California Santa Cruz fighting for things like proper compensation and health care. Here at Notre Dame, we've got a protest movement that just popped up this semester called End Hate at ND. One of our own students is a leader of that, and she wrote a very um, incredible letter about experiencing racism, homophobia, and sexism here, and called not just for individuals to be pu uh, punished, but the most um, affecting part of her letter was pointing out that these are structural problems, these are systemic problems, they're not going to be solved by punishing one or two people who said um, awful things. There's substantial change that has to happen at the university. Now the question is, how does that happen? And this is a conversation we're going to be starting once everyone's back from break in January with teach-ins and panels and trying to figure out what does it mean to make structural systemic change at a university that's had a legacy of these issues. So 2020, y'all, let's collectively act. There's some work to do. Let's protest. Let's see what we can do. See how yeah. we can make 2020 um, a year of change, a year difference from 2019. Yeah. Um... The thing is, you know, once again, I think if we pay attention to what our students are doing, by the time you get to the end of the semester, everybody's reasonably jaded about the whole academic enterprise and, mm -hmm. and everybody's just, you know, kind of in survival mode and trying to get done. But, you know, these these young people, they have to live in this world that, mm -hmm. that um, and presumably they're going to be in it a lot longer than you or I. And reality matters mm -hmm. and which is not to say that we will ever have a, a full uh, accounting of reality or that we will all have the same experience of reality but whether you're talking about the structural conditions of the institutions we live and work within or things like ice caps um, <laughs> they are facing the consequence of having to um to build beyond, to live beyond, and survive beyond um, the art, the confections and artifices that um, current generations have constructed for them, and that's actually kind of inspiring. And that's a really great final point then, because we started in a depressing place in this podcast and we're kind of depressing in the middle. But here at the end, let's take inspiration in that and Is move it, if forward. If that's inspiration, then I guess we'll have to take it. <laughs> I will say this. Um, some of my students in my class, um, you know, after reading Jameson, they decided that they need to have um, 
mimetic enclave parties. Oh, <laughs> that's what they were going to. Do. That was going to be their response to the end of the semester. <laughs> they were going to um, create new enclaves of meaning. Okay, <laughs> that was actually kind of great. Yeah. Well, c- well, congrats on in- inspiring that idea. Yeah. Our work matters. We try. All right. Uh, so, Acamedia. Yeah. Yeah. It is produced with the help of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as uh, the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we also appreciate the grand support of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. That we do. We could not do this without the work of an entire team. Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester. Stephanie Brown at Westchester University. Bill Kirkpatrick in the frozen north and Denison <laughs> University. And Frank Mondelli at Stanford. We are also grateful to the magical ears of Todd Thompson at the University of Texas. And thank you to him for putting this all together and coming up with the great music and the little wrinkles in your ear that you get to experience every time. Ear wrinkles. <laughs> and thank you uh, to this episode's participants, so Kiara Ferrari and Quinn Winchell. Thank you so much for hosting me in Matera. That was awesome. And also to Patrice Petro for the wonderful conversation that she had with Thomas Elsatzer. And Heidi Wasson and all the Field Notes team. All right, you'll hear from us in 2020. On that note. We're uh, going to inspire change and protest and shake things up. Days are getting longer. Days are getting longer.